Well, that weekend went quick. <laughs> Did it feel like it went quick for you, too? You got a lot of stuff done? Mine was productive, too. I... Uh, <clears throat> yeah. Let's see. Uh, there was Saturday, and that was a blur, because we had... Uh, I was... I had to kayak in the morning. Did some kayaking. No one threw any eggs at the FJ, which I'm very happy about. Um, <laughs> and then, uh, what? Do, let's see, how, how did this go? We went to a swim meet, which took forever. There are sometimes when you see, I have my kids are, are swimmers, and no, they're not future Olympians. At least not that I'm aware of. No one has come to me and said. Hey, you know, Chris, have you thought that uh, maybe your kids could uh, be Olympians? No, but we're we're happy about the fact that they're competing and they're doing well for their category that they're in. So we were uh, we were at the uh, a swim meet, and sometimes these things go quickly, and sometimes the stars align in the wrong direction. And uh, the the swim meet that was supposed to start you know, for the older kids at uh, like twelve thirty didn't start to almost three o'clock. You know, and being one of the world's most impatient people, that, uh, well, you know, so how, how did I spend my time? I spent my time working on coding because that's what geeks do. So <laughs> I uh, spent my, uh, my a large part of Saturday sitting in a uh, camping chair at a swim meet. My wife was reading the newspaper because she likes reading newspapers. Yes, yeah, you you you're, you're like my wife. I, every time I come around here, there's like newspapers everywhere. It's at my house. It's in my studio. What is with you? Are you people homeless? Are these your blankets? I like to touch it. Oh, you like to touch it. See, I just want to get it done quickly. I want to scan through it on the computer. It's like, eh, never mind. So I spent I spent uh, I was coding, and what was I coding? I was coding for the new embed codes for the uh, issues etc. website. So uh, issues etc. has a really cool feature now, and that is is that uh, you can embed. Uh, segments of uh, any segment of the issues etc radio program on your website like you know like you would like youtube so maybe we can call it issues tube <laughs> no, that really sounds lame <laughs> and then saturday we uh not saturday sunday had church uh had a family event plan that got put on the back burner and so i spent my afternoon at a church voters meeting um going to the dentist and having teeth pulled out is you know it without anesthesia is a little is a little more enjoyable. But what did I do? You know, I sat in the back of the room and I, I worked. And what did I do? I was coding again. And so I complete <laughs> really productive weekend. I, I spent time while the people were talking, giving their reports and stuff like that. Um, rather than having my full attention, I was multitasking. Normally, I'm not any good at this, but you know, I kept one ear. You know, listening to the church voters meeting. And then the other, you know, what I was doing was uh, redesigning the entire website for Pirate Christian Radio. So we've got a completely new look. The pirate ship is gone. And uh, now it, it the the Pirate Christian Radio looks a lot like um, my FJ Cruiser. <laughs> and we're waiting to hear back from several Christian uh, magazines as to whether or not they'll accept advertising from Pirate Christian Radio. Because we're a little edgy. <laughs> and, oh, oh, see, and the other thing that happened Saturday, Jehovah's Witnesses came by our neighborhood. And so at, what was funny is, is that I was loading up the FJ, getting ready to go to the swim meet. And uh, a couple of Jehovah's Witness ladies, I saw them you know, at the end of the street. And I'm thinking, okay, well, these are divine appointments. <laughs> 
And so as uh, as I was loading the camping chairs into the uh, FJ, the ladies had arrived at the FJ Cruiser, and I basically said, Hello, Jehovah's Witnesses. <laughs> and the lady looked at me and she said, How did you know we were Jehovah's Witnesses? Now, of course, you know it's obvious to me that they are, because number one, Mormon missionaries... They always wear the white shirts and the little black ties, you know, and uh, so they didn't. And, and not only that, Mormon missionaries wear the little name tags that says, hi, I'm elder so-and-so. Even though this kid can't shave yet, he's an elder in the Mormon church. And so, you know, the ladies were dressed rather appropriately and, you know, they look great. And so, you know, of course, they wanted to share with me the the uh, message of the uh, kingdom of God. That, uh, And so... The lady says, well, you know about Jehovah's Witnesses? I happen to have studied a lot about Jehovah's Witnesses, I said. And she says, oh, really? What do you think? And I basically said, well, um, I disagree with your guys' interpretation of the Bible. Really? How so? Well, I said, there's a lot of things we could talk about. We could talk about um, the Trinity. We could talk about uh, what you guys believe regarding who Jesus is. But I said, more importantly, I said... Uh, what I really strongly disagree with you about is uh, how a person is saved and what Jesus has done for us. And the lady says, well, what do you mean? And I said, well, let me ask you this. I said, do you believe that you're going to survive Armageddon? And uh, in case you're not aware, Jehovah's Witnesses actually don't believe that when you die, you go to be with the Lord. Okay, everybody who go, who dies goes to sleep. Okay, so it's nighty night time and you go into nap state and uh, at which point you really kind of cease to exist. Okay, and when Jesus returns, if if you've been a faithful servant and you've been good enough and smart enough and put in enough hours, you know, on a weekly basis, you know, you filled out your time card and you've knocked on enough doors. And after the battle of Armageddon is over, then. God, it, he'll remember you, and then you get resurrected and you live forever in paradise earth. Okay? So, my question for her, you know, you know, are you going to be remembered? Are you going to be, resu- you know, are you going to survive Armageddon? You know, actually, I think I've messed up their eschatology a little bit. Um, and she says, well, nobody knows. I, I don't know. I, don't, I have no certainty about that. Nobody can be sure. That they're going to live forever and survive Armageddon. I said, wow. Well, then what did Jesus do for you on the cross? They don't actually believe Jesus died on the cross. They believe he died on what they call a torture stake. And so, you know, there's no cross beam in in their understanding of what a cross is. But she didn't quibble about that. And and she said, "Well, well, Jesus died to redeem us. And I says, it doesn't sound like it worked or he didn't redeem you quite enough. And to which she started kind of getting a little defensive. And she's all, well, well, this is a little side note here. Uh, Dr. Rosenblatt, who is one of my mentors, told has always told me, he says, you know you're preaching the gospel, right? When people will say to you, well, does that mean that you can do whatever you want? Does that mean if, if, if this gift is so free, does that mean that we can do whatever we want? As if somehow the law is the only leverage that we have to keep people from beating up on each other, right? <laughs> you take away the laws as any kind of leverage, and all of a sudden we're free to do whatever we want. Rosenblatt's answer was uh, Luther's answer, and it's pretty straightforward. Well, yes, you can do whatever you want. Love God, then do whatever you want. Oh. 
Because, see, uh, see uh. anyway, coming back to this. So this lady, she immediately, she could just put the two, the, the dots together, and immediately she was all over the place. And she's all, well, are you, are you saying that, that we, we can sin and, and, and do whatever we want? And I said, well, let me answer your question this way. I said, um, do you love God with all your heart? Do you, have you ever, have you ever lied? Have you ever stolen anything? And so what I basically do in answering her question, what I do is I turn the law back on herself, which by the way, is a good thing to do with anybody who's self-righteous or caught up in a religious system whereby they are working in order to save themselves. So she immediately, uh, you know, she started and in order to tell the story correctly at this point, my wife, you know, wants to see what's going on because, you know, we've got to get going because we're almost late to this swim meet that was running late, but we didn't know it was running late. So she, you know, she comes around to the back of the FJ just in time to hear this woman say, well, I've never stolen anything. And the look on Barbara's face was just complete incredulity. She immediately puts her like hands on her hips and she goes, oh, you are good. <laughs> and, this, and the Jehovah's Witness lady got all mad at my wife and she's all, you are a rude person. <laughs> you know, and, and, and then I said, you know, you know, have you lied today? She's all, well, I, I don't knowingly lie. And my wife says, how, how does she put it? She said it with a smile on her face, too, which was rather interesting. She says, I can't believe that you are such a liar. <laughs> <laughs> this Jehovah's Witness lady, she got so mad. I mean, here I had ripped off her self-righteous blanket. Here she thinks she's keeping the law somehow. And because, you know, Jesus's death isn't enough. And she's got to she's got to make up for it. You know, whatever's missing, because, uh, you know. And I've just taken her self-righteous blanket and ripped it right off. And she's upset about that. And my wife is just not buying her lies at all. This woman is telling us to her face that she barely ever, ever sins anymore, any, ever. And that she never knowingly sins. And my wife is calling her a liar to her face. And this Jehovah's Witness lady is all, you are a rude person. You are just a terrible woman. And da 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 I'm thinking, oh, man, this thing has just degenerated. <laughs> you know? And so... Anyway, it was apparent that this JW lady wasn't going to talk to my wife at all. And uh, and so she basically, she says, well, what do you believe? And I said, I'm glad you asked. Because I believe what the scripture teaches, that all of us are by nature sinful. And as a result of it, the sin that we've, the sins that we commit on a daily basis now, and even, even if we trust in Christ, are so grievous and terrible that there's no way that we can atone for them and that uh, there's no way we can save ourselves whatsoever. And the good news is, is if you read the book of Galatians, go back and read the book of Galatians because it's all about whether or not you save yourself by keeping the law or whether Christ has saved you completely and is offering you salvation completely as a gift. And I said, the good news is, is that Christ has died for all of your sins, even the ones that you've committed today, even the ones you've committed yesterday, and even the ones you're going to commit until now, until the day that you die. And, <laughs> and uh, she wasn't really ready for that. And so, um, you know, what's funny is, is I've spent a lot of time in cult ministry, and um, the Jehovah's Witnesses and the Mormons and, and other cults, they've built up very good defenses against doctrines like the Trinity 
uh, the deity of Christ and things like that. But the one thing they don't have a defense against is salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, through Christ's work alone. They haven't really built up any really good defenses against it. And the reason why they can't is because when you know if they try to build it up, all you have to do is take the law and crank it up to like the hundredth power and then hold that mirror right up to their face. And what will happen is, is that their self-righteousness will come crumbling down like a house of blocks. Well, this woman was very upset. You know, first of all, that her righteousness was completely impugned. And and so she left in a huff, you know, and uh, my wife's all, did I do something wrong? <laughs> and I basically said, no, honey, I think you were right to not believe her that she was righteous. <laughs> I think you were right to not believe her. And she just was upset because you saw right through her lies. And woman to woman, you let her have it. So <laughs> Anyway, so it was an exciting weekend. It was a great weekend. And and here's the deal. Oh, i got to tell you guys this now. It's uh, Today's Monday, uh, September 22nd. One week from today, Pirate Christian Radio's uh, lineup completely changes. It completely changes. And what we're doing is we're kind of flipping everything on its head. And what we've, what we've been doing is we start our broadcast day with pretty much just a, like a half hour before issues, etc. We've been putting in a, a, a preaching program right before issues, etc., and then Issues Etc. really has been leading off. Well, we're going to change all of that. And what we're doing is uh, we're going to start our broadcast day at 10 a.m. Pacific. And uh, which still, you know, it's one, one in the afternoon uh, for you folks on the East Coast. And, uh, and you know, we're, we're, some big changes are going to happen. And so what happens is my show will no longer be in the middle. I'm going to be, uh, I'm going to be cleaning up the day. My broadcast will actually be the last thing, official thing, on Pirate Christian Radio for the day. And then what we do, we're going to continue doing what we're doing. That's uh, uh, replaying our, our our daily program throughout the day. Our goal is to get up to – now, D'Onofrio is going to challenge us. He wants to get up to 16 hours of original content, but we're, like, nowhere near it. My Our mini goal is to get to eight hours of content and then loop it three times. And the nice thing is is that we've got, we've got a growing listenership in uh, Australia and New Zealand – and so this gives them the ability to listen, you know, as well. And so 10 a.m. on Monday, we begin with Preaching Christ. The White Horse Inn comes in at 10.30 in the morning. Then we got Dying to Live at 11 o'clock. The Gift, the God Whispers is going to be noon Pacific. God, Tenofrio is here cheering for himself. That was a little gratuitous, don't you think? Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> And then we, uh, and then at uh, one o'clock Pacific we have issues, etc. And then I'll clean up at uh, three o'clock Pacific with uh, fighting for the faith, which also means that uh, without the uh, without other uh, shows backing into you know coming up next, I can go two hours if I wanted to. I can, I can go four. In fact, I just love hearing myself speak. And so, yeah, of course, everyone listening to the program knows that already. Uh. <laughs> So uh, yeah, stay tuned for that. We're, we're really excited about the changes. We think it's going to be a smart change. And then what will happen is, is that when I'm done, we'll just start the broadcast day over again. And so I think what we should do at the end of my uh, – remember the old televisions when they would sign off at the end of the day? They would, they would sign off with the, uh, the, the uh, Star Spangled Banner. You know? I think we should do that. You know? And I'll, I'll be singing. I'll hit the high note. In the land of the free <laughs> – Yeah, right. It would make her. It would make Roseanne Barr's version of the uh, national anthem just 
sound like she's Mariah Carey. <laughs> All right, maybe not. Okay, so today, okay, I've got good news and I've got bad news. I've overprepared. I've got, I think I've got enough for two and a half shows today, but I'm not going to do it all in one day today. You know, maybe next week I can do two hours, but uh, we'll see. All right, so uh, where do I go from here? You know what I want to do real quick? I want to. I, I know last week I, I uh, said that we're, I'm probably done talking about the shack, but this will be the last installment of it because I've been really sitting there stewing about the whole shack thing. I read the book, kind of let it seep in. I told you guys. You know, that, uh, you know, as I was reading it, I was enjoying it because I like the theologizing, the philosophizing. And of course, I'm a nerd. But there's it, the, the one thing that just really stuck in my craw about this is that as I was reading it, the overall impression that I got is as he's ta- as he's setting up these the, the Trinity characters, Aunt Jemima, uh, Jesus and uh, Surayu. Uh, we'll call her Hello Kitty because she's a little Japanese girl. Um so you got Aunt Jemima, Jesus, and, and Hello Kitty um, as the Trinity. One of the things that really struck me as I was reading it and, and kind of going back and rehashing some of this stuff is is that I had absolutely no affinity to this God. I did not like this Trinity, and, and I, you know, I wasn't familiar with this Trinity at all. In fact, um, as I was reading this book... Um, it felt to me like it was I was experiencing some kind of a therapy session, you know, because you know here you've got the the Aunt Jemima, Hello Kitty, and Jesus. They're constantly hugging and kissing and and all this icky, gooey emotionalism going on, and um, the emphasis that the author keeps coming back to is it's all about relationship. It's all about relationship, Mackenzie. Mackenzie, it's all about relationship. And it, it struck me over the weekend. You know what I was dealing with here? This was Alan Alda. The, Mackenzie is is uh, Hawkeye Pierce. He's Alan Alda's character from uh, from Mash. And I remember as a kid, you know, watching Mash and and the final episode of Mash, which was like the most watched television show of all time. And that whole thing was like, you know, I I watched that because of all the hype. I remember as a kid, and then go, after watching it, going. I didn't like that. And the reason I didn't like this, like, because, you know, Alan Alda's character, he has this big psychological breakdown. And so the, the, the last episode of MASH is Alan Alda's character. He spends most of it in a therapy session rehashing some terrible memory and having to work through it. This was like the last episode of MASH. It was this feminized, ma- ma- emasculated man, Mackenzie, you know, in a therapy session with with the with the holy trinity and the holy trinity was anything but holy i mean it was it was more like an oprah couch session and the thing <clears throat> thing that i just kept coming back to is is that there was no sense of holiness whatsoever uh regarding this god in fact at one point in the book um you know when, when uh, mackenzie meets god for the first time aunt jemima papa <sighs> still having a hard time with this uh the first words out of Papa's mouth to to uh, Mackenzie is, "Well, Mackenzie, just don't stand there gawking with your mouth open like your pants are full." And it's like, "Huh? This this doesn't remind me of any of, of God from the Bible." But there's this one, there's this another part where Mackenzie's having a meal with the Holy Trinity, and I have to say that really with a kind of a loose idea. And uh, and Jesus asked Max, "So what do you think, Mac?" 
Uh, Jesus asked, gesturing toward him, and Max says, Well, I have no idea what you're talking about, said Mac, but with his mouth uh, half full of the very tasty greens. But I love the way that you do it. Whoa, said Aunt Jemima, I mean Papa, who had returned from the kitchen with a, yet another dish. Take it easy on those greens, young man. Those things can give you the trots if you ain't careful. <laughs> oh, thanks for the advice there, Papa. Um... This doesn't remotely even remind me of the God of the of the Old Testament or New Testament. And so what I thought I would do is to kind of help us out here, is uh, remind you of what the God of the Bible is like, okay? Um, I doubt that when we meet God, first of all, we're not, he's not going to appear as Aunt Jemima. In fact, I'm like... 100% sure on this. He's not going to appear as Aunt Jemima. He hasn't revealed himself as Aunt Jemima. And let me remind you of some ways in which God has revealed himself. In fact, um, let's take a look at how people have uh, reacted to their encounters, or close encounters, of the Yahweh kind. We read from Exodus chapter 20. Exodus chapter 20 is a great passage. In fact, if you have never read Exodus chapter 20, I recommend that you go and read it in context. Actually, start at Exodus chapter 1. Or if you want to get the backstory of the whole thing, start in uh, Genesis, you know, uh, with the story of Jacob and Esau. Because you, you don't even appreciate the whole story until you get back to Jacob and Esau. But uh, here in Exodus chapter 20, we have God uh, literally giving the children of Israel... The Ten Commandments. And uh, what's what's fun here is not just that he gave the children of Israel the Ten Commandments, but uh, their, uh, their thoughts and feelings about God. And you'll notice that God is not, a very, not very therapeutic here after he's given the Ten Commandments. Let me just read from uh, starting in verse 1. And God spoke these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. Take that, Chuck Curry. <laughs> you shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water or under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. For I am the Lord your God, and I am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commands. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God, and on it you shall not do any work. You or your son or your daughter or your male servant or your female servant or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in the six days the Lord made heaven and earth and sea and all that is in them and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and he made it holy. Honor your father and mother that your days may be long in the land that the Lord is giving you. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that is your neighbor's. So God's just given the Ten Commandments and check this out. Okay, see if see if this uh, even remotely feels like what we've been reading about in the shack. Now, when all the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking, that's the presence of God, by the way, all that thunder, lightning, 
trumpets and mountain smoking, the people were afraid and they trembled and they stood far off. And they said to Moses, you speak to us and we will listen, but do not let God speak to us or we're going to die. Apparently, God, I mean, Papa, Aunt Jemima didn't show up here and tell them, now be careful of that manna. If you have too much of that manna, it might give you the trots. <laughs> Let me give another example. <clears throat> Exodus chapter 24. We read about Moses ascending to Mount Sinai. It says, then, uh, Exodus chapter 24, verse 15. Then Moses went up on the mountain, and the cloud covered the mountain. And the glory of the Lord dwelt on Mount Sinai, and the cloud covered it for six days. And on the seventh day, God called Moses out of the midst of the cloud. Now the appearance of the glory of the Lord was like a devouring fire on the top of the mountain in the sight of the people of Israel. Moses entered the cloud and went up on the mountain, and Moses was on the mountain for 40 days and for 40 nights. A devouring fire. It doesn't say anything about the trots, or don't just sit there with your gawking with your mouth open like your pants are full of something. Maybe I'm just being unloving. Is that what it is? Yeah, okay. Mm-hmm. <laughs> All right. Let me let me read another passage. You know, there's more of these passages like this. Okay. This I mean the the God of the Bible doesn't sound anything remotely like the God of the shack. When Moses came down from Mount Sinai with the two tablets of testimony, I'm in Exodus chapter thirty four now, starting in verse twenty nine. Um with the two tablets of the testimony in his hand, he came down from the mountain. Moses did not know that the skin the, the skin of his face shone because he had been talking with God. Aaron and all the people of Israel saw Moses, and behold, the skin of his face shone, and they were afraid to come near him. Interesting. Spending an entire 40 days. You know, there it is. 40, he was 40 days on Sinai. This was like before Rick Warren. It's the 40 days of glory. Right? I'm sorry. Okay. <clears throat> Yeah, that's his next series. Yeah, Moses uh, and Warren's going to send Mount Sinai and have the forty days of glory. All right. Anyway, all right. So we continue. So his face shone, and they were afraid to come near him. They were afraid to come near Moses after he had spent forty days with God, and he didn't even realize that his face was like on fire. You know, I guess they call that an afterglow. <laughs> Okay, but Moses called to them and Aaron and the elders in the congregation and they returned to him and Moses talked with them. Afterward, all the people of Israel came near and he commanded them all that the Lord had spoken with them on Mount Sinai. And when Moses had finished speaking with them, he put a veil over his face. Uh, whenever Moses went in before the Lord to speak with him, he would remove the veil until he came out. And when he came out and told the people of Israel what he, what he had commanded, the people of Israel would see the face of Moses and that the skin of Moses' face was shining. And Moses would put the veil over his face again until he went and spoke with him. Why did he put a veil over his face? Because people were terrified of him. And this was just the afterglow of God's glory. Exodus chapter 40, we read more about God's glory. Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. This is Exodus chapter 40, verses 34 through 38. And Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud settled on it and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Throughout all their journeys, whenever the cloud was taken up from the tabernacle, the people of Israel 
would set out. But if the cloud was not taken up, they did not set out until the day that it was taken up. For the cloud of the Lord was on the tabernacle, and fire was in it by night in the sight of all the house of Israel throughout all their journeyings. That's pretty clear. You know, so apparently Aunt Jemima, you know, she's got this burning thing going on, you know, and she's got this glory. See, it doesn't fit as soon as you make it Aunt Jemima. Or how about Isaiah? You know, Isaiah actually, uh, he had a vision where he was in the throne room of God. And let's find out if God asked him if, about, you know, whether or not he has the trots. Isaiah chapter 6, it says, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim, each had six wings, with two he ha- he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. So you got these, you got these, literally the seraphim, six-winged seraphim, and two of their wings are covering their face, and two of them are covering their feet. Yeah, well, it's it's a little higher than that. Sorry, yeah, that the English there is is being polite, covering up their shame, if you would. Yeah, yes, apparently seraphim have loins. Anyway, um. So they're covering their their faces and their important parts. And uh, one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the thresholds shook at the voice of him who called. And the house was filled with smoke. And then God said, Isaiah, I think you have the trots. It doesn't fit when you do that. Verse 5 says this, And Isaiah said, Woe is me, I am lost, I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King of the Lord of hosts. I am undone. Uh, Mackenzie didn't seem to be undone. He was sitting there with his mouth open like his pants were full. You see what I'm saying? It's There's something really, really off here. And that is what's I mean, this is a really low view of God. And this is not the God of the Bible. God is completely holy other than us. And here's the deal. The only reason why we're able to stand in the presence of Jesus or the apostles were able to stand in the presence of Jesus is because in, in Philippians chapter two, it says that, you know, Christ took on the nature of a servant. You know, this has to do with the humiliation of God It has to do with his condescending to us and being found in human likeness. But, uh, I mean, literally, you know, you get a there's one time in which you actually kind of get a peek at Jesus's glory, and that's on the mountain of transfiguration. And what happened there on the mountain of transfiguration when Jesus's glory punches through for even just a moment? The disciples were terrified. I mean, I'm sorry, but the God of the shack is not the God of the Bible, not by any stretch of the imagination. God is not Aunt Jemima. God's not going to sit there and say, listen there, boy, you you better not eat too many of them greens or you're going to get the trots. It's a very low view of God. In fact, this is the God of therapy. What's that segment they did on issues, et cetera, and they talk about on the White Horse Inn all the time about people in America pretty much believe in moralistic therapeutic deism. Well, this is the God of moralistic therapeutic deism. There he is in all of his unglory. I mean, her unglory. <sighs> Ridiculous. Anyway, so I've <laughs> kind of done that one to death. 
All right. What we're going to do here is we're going to go into our first break. You know what? I don't know why I say first break. We only do one break. <laughs> I are smart. <laughs> we're going to go into our break. We will be right back. And when we get back, we're going to talk about the Green Bible. Apparently, God is a jolly green, is the jolly green giant. I can't wait to read this stuff to you. It's beyond belief. And I think tomorrow we'll get to the 40 days of love. We'll talk a little bit more about that. I've got a great quote from the week two that you've got to hear Rick Warren's un-gospel. And that's the best way to put it. But I don't think we're going to have time to get to it today. So uh, if you would like to email me and uh, let me know how Alan Alda's Therapeutic God is actually the true God of the Bible and that we just need to look with spiritual eyes. Email me, talkback at fightingforthefaith.com. That's talkback at fightingforthefaith.com. And we'll be right back. If you think God is a black woman named Papa, then you need to get out of the shack and read your Bible. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. This is the air I breathe. This is the air I breathe. I've had enough of this sissy, frenzy, turning photo written music you have the audacity to call worship. Men, put this entire girly praise band in the boo box. Let's wheel in the organ and get some real worship music underway. Ye be listening to Pirate Christian Radio. My local Christian bookstore just sells Jesus schlock. Where can I find good material? We at NewReformationPress.com are committed to providing a hand-picked selection of books and teaching materials that educate, inform, and entertain while uniquely maintaining a relentless focus on the gospel. We believe that these forgotten doctrines and their scriptural emphases can not only enrich individual Christians and revive the church, but also address the deepest needs of our culture. Discover our growing library of resources by Dr. Rod Rosenblatt of the White Horse Inn radio program, including his powerful address, The Gospel for Those Broken by the Church available exclusively at NewReformationPress.com or the Big Picture audio presentation Bible in an Hour by Pastor Wade Butler. Learn the center and scope of redemptive history and scripture in just one hour. And of course, be sure not to miss our selection of t-shirts, gifts, and artwork as well. NewReformationPress.com Finally, Reformation theology made accessible. I love my bumper music. <laughs> it makes me seem so cool. And I am not. <laughs> I'm sorry. Ah. All right. Before we talk about the Green Bible, I have to play for you that segment from the Colbert Report. This is, this is hilarious. Uh, I don't know why any politician this doofusy 
would go on Colbert's show. Colbert, you know, he can eat people alive inside of 20 seconds. And so here we've got a representative. He's a Republican, Lynn Westmoreland of Georgia. And Colbert is going to be asking him about, you know, the bill that he co-sponsored that would have them post the Ten Commandments inside the House of the House of Representatives and in the Senate. <sighs> and uh, wow, because that's that's going to solve everything, you know, because God's law, you know, that. Mm-hmm. All right, here we go. This is uh, Colbert and uh, uh, Republican Representative uh, Lynn Westmoreland of Georgia. The bill requiring the display of the Ten Commandments in the House of Representatives and the Senate. Mm-hmm. Why was that important to you? Well, the Ten Commandments is is not a bad thing uh, for people to understand and to respect. I'm with you. Where better place could you have something like that than in a judicial building mm-hmm. or in a courthouse? That is a good question. Can you think of any better <laughs> building to put the Ten Commandments in than in a public building? No. How about a church? <laughs> I think if we were totally without them, we may lose a sense of our direction. What are the Ten Commandments? <laughs> what are all of them? You want me to name them yeah. all? Please. Um, <laughs> don't murder. Don't lie. Mm-hmm. Don't steal. There's three. Um... I can't name them all. Congressman, thank you for taking time away from keeping the Sabbath day holy to talk to me. Anytime, Steve. (laughs) Congressman, you're welcome. Oh, yeah. (laughs) Co-sponsor. Co-sponsor of a bill that uh, would require federal courthouses and the House of Representatives and the Senate to post a copy of the Ten Commandments. And he can name... Three of them. Wow. He's obviously a religious giant. Okay. You know what the sad part is? I bet there's a bunch of people that are in churches that are all riled up about posting the Ten Commandments and, and making sure that they are there for us to all see, and they'd probably score just about like him. Now, if you want to know what the Ten Commandments are, you're not sure... Back up the tape of today's program. I actually read them for you. They're found in Exodus chapter 20. And at the end of it, people are going, I want to die because <laughs> God's glory is too big. All right. Okay. Now, uh, I think for the balance of the program today, and tomorrow we're going to get in, uh, just uh, you got to stay tuned for tomorrow's program. I don't necessarily always like harping on Rick Warren, although it's 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 not hard to do. Um Rick Warren uh, really biffs it. Uh, I've got I've got a segment that uh, from last week's uh, Forty Days of Love, where uh, Rick Warren gives something that sounds gospel-ish, and that's the I'm putting the best construction on it. Sounds gospel-ish, and uh, you know he talks about Jesus dying for our sins because that's gospel-ish. But uh, wait till you hear what he says, um, what it is that, why God forgives us, or what it is we need to do to get God's forgiveness. Wait till you hear. I I won't say anything else because I'm going to, you know, I'll just give it away. 
that's that's the problem. You know, I'm looking here at the uh, a quick piece from the Museum of Idolatry. I've uh, posted this up there today at the Museum of Idolatry. That's at a little leaven dot com. It's a Jesus plush doll that comes with its own WWJD bracelet. <laughs> I kid you not. I've, the picture's there at a little11.com. It says plush Jesus. And uh, this plush Jesus doll comes with his own WWJD bracelet so that he won't forget to do the things that he would do. <laughs> Why would Jesus need to wear a WD? It wouldn't be like a... Uh, hang on a second here. I gotta do. I gotta work out the initials here. What would I do? Wouldn't it be a WWID bracelet? If Jesus was wearing it, it would be a what would I do bracelet, right? That only makes sense. All right. Yeah, and he looks kind of like a Muppet. My daughter looked at it and says he looks just like Muppet Jesus, and he's wearing a WWJD bracelet. This is ridiculous. All right, all right. We're going to talk about now the Green Bible. I'm going to play t- play for you uh, audio from a video from the Green Bible website. There's a brand new uh, Bible available on the market from HarperCollins Publishing called the Green Bible, and uh, we're going to yeah, it's the Green Letter Edition. It's going to help you be more environmentally conscious, sensitive, and uh, and uh, responsible. It's so important, you know, to have the green letter Bible. So here we go. Without any further ado, you're going to love this. I can't wait to get my copy of the green Bible. References to heaven and 530 to love. Yet it makes over 1,000 1,000 1,000 references to the earth, to our planet, to our home. The earth and its fullness are the Lord's. 1 Corinthians 10:26. For everything created by God is good. 1 Timothy 4:4. 4, 4. Are we called to care? Are we called to care? For- are we called to care for the earth? What does the Bible actually say about the environment? You mean like the traditional Bible? I have no idea. I don't know either. You know, that's a question I haven't ever considered. I think God made it, right? Seven days? That's about it. I suppose there's at least some lines that have said, master the earth. So you have revelations in there where God's going to completely destroy the world. So if you're a really religious person, then you're not really going to care because you're going to have a feeling that God's going to destroy it anyway. I think it's more about interpretation of the Bible. And some people interpret it as no need to care for the environment. The Green Bible it is the first ever specialty Bible that takes the issues of sustainability, stewardship of the... I, I got to pause right there. How do you make a specialty Bible? A specialty Bible. Well, I, I guess we can just do the prosperity gospel Bible. You know, I would like to do the Bible for fat white guys who live in South Orange County. That would be a great Bible for me. That would be so relevant. You know, it, we can talk about, we can highlight the passages that talk about kayaking for the Lord. <sighs> Never mind. All right, we continue with the the Green Bible. Ho, 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 Green Bible. Here's what many in the religious community call creation care very seriously. The actual object of the Bible is a sustainable product in terms of recyclable paper, recyclable bindings. The ink is soy-based. We have what we call the Green Letter Edition. That is, all these passages that do speak about creation care. Green Letter Edition. I mean, it used to be you could buy a Bible. <laughs> I don't know if you can get these anymore. It might be an outdated idea. that The words of Jesus would be in red. That would be a red letter edition, right? 
Now we have the green letter edition where all the passages that talk about taking care of the planet <sighs> are all in green. Isn't that great? I'm feeling I'm feeling my carbon credits going down my carbon's, you know, by the moment. RRN Green Inc. We have these essays. The Nobel laureate Archbishop Tutu is doing the forward. We have Brian McLaren who Okay, Bishop Desmond Tutu and Brian McLaren have written articles for the Green Bible. Bishop Desmond Tutu, who shared the stage with the, his holy, <coughs> I can't even say it, uh, the Dalai Lama um, at the uh, Seeds of Compassion event, where they talked about how all religions are the same. And McLaren, who's arguing that uh, that it's really dangerous that uh, you know that Christians are dangerous because they have they have access to the world's largest supply of nuclear weapons, and that we need to find common ground with all the other religions. Tutu and McLaren. With, were they going to sell this to the Republican Party? I don't think so. I, you know, I bet you Sarah Palin would use this as target practice, except for it's the Bible. Who is a best-selling author and one of the leading voices among American evangelicals? Barbara Brown Taylor, Bishop N. T. Wright, Matthew Sleeth, Ellen Bernstein. Big. This is like a who's who in liberal theology, man. Is John Dominic Crossan making an appearance here? How about Funk? Or is he, is he still alive? Is Funk still alive? I don't know. Names from around the religious spectrum. I think it will surprise a lot of people of faith. They'll say, what does God have to say about the earth? What do the scriptures have to say about the earth? These things that I hold sacred, I thought. You know, if you would actually just read your Bible, you wouldn't need any green letter editions. Oh, man. Boy, people are going to be shocked to find out that God actually cares about the planet. Well, Shazam! No way! I had no idea! Well, that's because your pastor doesn't preach it to you, duh! Give me a break! <laughs> we don't need a green Bible. People just need to read their Bibles! This is retarded. Nothing. This is part of the reason that we have the Sierra Club as one of our partners. The Sierra Club! <laughs> Sierra Club endorses the green Bible. It's an anti... This is. We've highlighted all... The Marxist passages in red. And the Humane Society, these are not faith groups, as, as we all know, but they're very excited to partner with us because the message that this brings is we're all in this together. The Green Bible is, is a great resource. It's impressive to open up the Bible. This is the Reverend Ben Daniel from uh, Foothill Presbyterian Church. And see how much of it is green. What I'm going to do with the Green Bible is use it as a teaching tool so that the people of the congregation can seek to live faithfully in a way which is gentle upon the earth. What? <sighs> We're only going to read the passages now that deal with the earth? I'm going to use the green bible to teach you to live in a way that's gentle upon the earth reduce your carbon score pay pay al gore your carbon credits there will no longer be questions about should christians should jews should people of faith of any stripe should they care about the planet here it is in the flesh in print a resource that you can use that's tied directly to scripture by esteemed tied directly to scripture. I thought it was scripture that you were never mind. Leaders today. The Green Bible, I never heard of that, but that's definitely something I want to take a look at. We on God's earth. 
we should honor it and respect it and take care of it. <sighs> All right. I actually happen to have the introduction to the Green Bible right here in front of me. And I plan on reading some very important segments from the introduction to the Green Bible. The name of the article is The Power of a Green God. Ho, 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 green giant. Okay, um, so The Power of a Green God by uh, Matthew Sleeth, MD. This is the opening. And right off the bat, we've got a problem because the, uh, the Green Bible, intro- the introduction to the Green Bible engages in scripture twisting. Right off the bat. Can you believe that? The Green Bible. Here we go. The Green Bible, which you hold in your hands. Actually, I'm holding the introduction to the Green Bible in my hands. <clears throat> is an answer to prayer. Whose? Um, it has been an amazing journey to arrive at this place. But before I get ahead of myself, let me first share my story and how I got here. One February break at the turn of the millennium, our family left the gray winter of northern New England and headed to an island off the coast of Florida for vacation. On the second day, our children, Clark and Emma, wore themselves out playing in the surf, building sandcastles, and catching chameleons. The kids went to bed early, and my wife, Nancy, and I found ourselves alone. We sat on the porch watching the sunset and the stars rise. The island on which we stayed had no cars or roads. The cares of the world were an ocean away, and the sights and sound of nature lulled us to peace. Time slowed. The nebula in the constellation Orion shone clearly. In that relaxed moment, surrounded my palm trees murmuring in the wind, Nancy asked me a question that was going to change my life forever. What, she queried, is the biggest problem facing the world? What is the biggest problem facing the world? What is it? Environment. Well, apparently the biggest problem facing the world, according to the Green Bible, is going to be the environment. But according to the Bible, it's not the environment. The government. Oh, yeah, there we go. It's the government. <laughs> Just vote Republican and it'll all go away. That's the red tape Bible. Oh, that's the red tape Bible. Sorry, yeah. <sighs> so what, the, the, apparently this Bible is going to answer the question, what is the biggest problem facing the world? And it's going to address the biggest problem facing the world. Despite or because of the peaceful surroundings, I considered her question in earnest. The contenders for humankind's greatest problem are many, war, terrorism, poverty, disease, starvation, and at the root of everything is selfishness. I considered the choices and said, the world is dying. My answer did not come from abstract sources. Many changes had already taken place in my life and are now readily apparent to anyone with eyes to see. The last of the majestic chestnut trees near my childhood home are now extinct. There are no chestnuts on Chestnut Lane. There are no elms on Elm Street. There are no caribou in Caribou, Maine. There are no buffalo in Buffalo, New York. Multiple states have had to change their official tree, animal, or flower because of extinctions. 
I grew up in the Mid-Atlantic area. In just a single generation, the fields that supported 300 years of inhabitants have all been replanted with houses. The flocks of birds that migrated for hours over our backyard in the spring and fall are gone. The snow fences that road crews put up every October are no longer needed because it rarely snows now. This apparently is the biggest problem facing us. Where? Um, Mid-Atlantic. Did it ever snow in the mid-Atlantic states? Those of you living in the Carolinas and Virginia, you know, can you email me and tell me about your weather conditions there? You know, it's been an awfully mild summer here in Southern California. But, of course, you know, the, the low temperatures here prove global warming. I don't know how, but apparently that's how it works. When the, when the planet cools down, that proves global warming's true. I wish I was... You know what snowed in Baghdad for the first time in history in January? Because of global warming. <sighs> we continue with the introduction to the Green Bible. Well, what will you do about it? Nancy wanted to know that night in Florida, and I had no answer. When we returned home, my journey began. On the surface, our life looked good. I had a job as an emergency room physician and was chief of the medical staff at a picturesque hospital. We had the traditional nuclear family, complete with son and daughter. I didn't know that you were allowed to have nuclear-powered children. Is, is that legal? Sorry. <laughs> Couldn't resist. <clears throat> my son's going into the nuclear program in the Navy. Did I mention that? Okay, let's see. We had the traditional nuclear family, complete with son and daughter. I drove a fast car with a teak dashboard, and when I got home, I pushed a button, and one of the two garage doors opened automatically. Well, that proves he's evil. All right, yet we had no spiritual anchor, no particular religious worldview. Nancy and I grew up in different faith backgrounds. She had been raised in a conservative Jewish home. I had been raised in a Protestant home, but it hadn't taken other than to see someone wet or memorialized, I'd not been inside a church in 25 years. I believe that good science and reasoning could resolve all of life's problems. My search for environmental answers paralleled a new faith journey. It began to be apparent to me that there was something more. So much of what makes up the human experience cannot be measured by micrometer. How does one quantify justice, love, peace, and beauty? How does one explain evil? So I began reading through the world's sacred texts. There are many truths to be found on the pages of the Bhagavad Gita, the Quran, the Ramanaya, but I did not find the answers I sought. One day, sitting in the waiting room of the hospital, I picked up a copy of the Bible. I began reading the book of Matthew, and it changed everything. I found answers. I learned the compelling truth that the scriptures is not to be proven by archaeology, archaeological, scientific, or theological theorems. The power of the Bible is most evident in its ability to change lives. Okay. Chuck out archaeology, science, and theology. They're gone, but changing lives. See, that's what's important. It can transform a wealthy Italian playboy into St. Francis of Assisi. It's, a, it's amazing grace that can transform a debauching, murderous slave trader into a humble abolitionist. Actually, it was the gospel that did that, by the way. Um, that's John Newton he was referring to. It can transform prostitutes into women of virtue, cowards into rocks of the church, and the proud into the meek. When I read the gospels and thought about the world's environmental problems, I found answers. He's reading the Bible through an environmentalist lens? Matthew 7, 1 struck me as a particularly compelling passage. Do not judge so that you may not be judged. I did not know that that was about environmentalism. 
For with the judgment you make, you will be judged, and the measure you give will be the measure you get. How often in all walks of life do we judge others by a standard different from the one we use to measure our own shortcomings? When I applied these words of Christ to myself, I did not like what I found. I was concerned about pollution and the death of the planet, but what about my family's part in it? Yes, that's right. His family's killing the planet. Did you know that? So we took an accounting. Our family added up all of the energy we used and the trash and pollution that we made. This exercise is called ecologic footprinting. We found our family was average for the United States, although this was better than most doctors or people in our neighborhood. It was a poor showing compared to the rest of the world. On average, consumption by Americans is double that of our British counterparts and multiple times more than our African, Chinese, or Indian brothers and sisters. Well, that's because um, if you live in a village in Rwanda, you don't have to commute on the 405 freeway for an hour every day to get to work. It'd be nice if you supplied some context here. And if you live in the rainforest and the way you get your food is by hunting, you don't do that on a motorcycle. Just, <clears throat> anyway. No, the animals do not come in packaging in the rainforest. They don't. <clears throat> After telling us not to judge others, Christ instructs us to clean up our own act. He understands that the surest excuse for us not to do the right thing is our innate ability to spot flaws in others. We are instructed to get the two-by-four out of our own eye before we worry about the speck of sawdust in our neighbor's eye. I did not know these passages were about our carbon footprints. I had no idea. After we measured our energy usage, our family took Christ at his word and set about changing. Jesus tells us to, to lower our ecological footprint? Where? <clears throat> First, my job, my paycheck, and the doctor-sized house went. As I told the hospital board when I resigned as chief of staff, I felt called to serve God and to save the planet. With an unpaid, undefined job and a financial leap of faith, we moved to a home the exact height, width, and depth of our garage, our old garage. Don't feel sorry for us. We had a doctor-sized garage. We found that one set of couches served us fine, and two, set, two of our other sofas helped young couples starting out without multiple televisions, stereos, alarm clocks, garage openers, a clothes dryer. I did not know that having a clothes dryer was... The, what Jesus tells us to get was evil. I just didn't know. <clears throat> Apparently, they've gotten rid of all of their appliances. I feel like he's judging me. Yeah, I feel like I'm being judged. Yeah, I agree. And incandescent bulbs. Yeah, those had to go too. And we were able to cut our electric bill down to one tenth of the national average. Woohoo! Our family also began to distinguish between our wants and our needs. We stopped defining ourselves by what we did and began to concentrate on what we were becoming. First I, then, first I, then Clark, and then Nancy, and finally Emma became followers of Christ. When did Jesus tell us to lower our carbon footprint? When did that become a sin? Oh, I know, the Sierra Club says it is. Ay, 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 ay. So we began attending a church and a small faith group. By the way, follower of Jesus, that's a very strange way. Notice he didn't say Christian. Follower of Christ, that's a, that's an emergent term. Emphasis is on what you do, not what Christ has done, by the way. 
All right, uh, let's see. Through the positive examples of... Okay, we began attending a church and a small faith group which helped us learn about giving of ourselves, our time, and our resources. Through the positive examples of our mentors, we learned an essential law of any faith and life. Complacency is the greatest obstacle to spiritual growth. So now spiritual growth is being defined as lowering your carbon footprint. In fact, you're not spiritually growing if in, if you have incandescent bulbs, a clothes dryer... Um, if you don't use soy-based ink, is this pen I have, is this using soy-based ink? Oh, I feel like such a sinner. Get that out of my hands. Uh, oh, are you serious? No, no, that's what, yeah. All right. Sorry. He was showing me a, a report that there's a snow predicted for the mid-Atlantic states in February. You know, he was, thank you, Pastor D'Onofrio. Anyway, so we continue here. Um, okay. So apparently we, uh, if. One morning at church, I was talking about my environmental concerns with a friend. Eventually, he asked, you're not one of those tree huggers, are you? I went home and questioned myself. Tree hugger? I never thought of that. Uh, Being born again had changed my worldview. I no longer watched the same movies, listened to the same music, or traveled in the same social circles. I felt a deep conviction to care for the environment. Yet I knew not one, I knew no one at church who shared my views. That's because, um... hate to break this to you, but the Bible doesn't say that the big problem that we're trying to solve is an environmental problem. The environmental problem is actually a symptom of our sin. The big problem that the Bible addresses is the sin problem, which has multiple symptoms, including the environment. But I'll get to that in just a minute, because this is just such a fun story to read. Let's see here. I went home and questioned myself. Uh, and, uh, being born again had completely changed my worldview. I felt a deep... Uh, no one at my church... There we go. Here we go. I was aware of the standard biblical proof text supporting creation care, but as Shakespeare once wrote, the devil can cite scripture for his own purposes. Much harm has been done in the past by taking one or two lines from the Bible and building an entire theology on them. Well, isn't that what you're doing? Um, was the call to care for creation one of those instances? Was my church right in remaining silent on creation care? The good news is, is that the Christian faith is not based upon trends. This is the good news. The, the, the gospel talk here. The good news is that the, the, the Christian faith is not based on trends, but is instead founded on a book, the Bible. I agree. Hey, we're in agreement here. We turn to it when a child is born, a couple of uh, marries, and a loved one dies. I turn to it to answer my question. I began reading the Bible from cover to cover, underlining the verses every time they told of care for the creation, God revealed through nature, or God interacting with the creation. What my reading of the Bible disclosed is that creation care is the very core of our Christian walk. What? Creation care is the core of our Christian walk? I thought Christ was. But of course, Christ isn't really mentioned here except for as the guy who tells us not to judge. And the big problem we're solving is your carbon footprint, not your sin problem. Let me read that again. What my reading of the Bible discloses is that creation care is at the very core of our Christian walk. Take, for example, the biblical view of trees. The Bible begins with a tree, the tree of life. It is the symbol of the Lord. This is why throughout history, many Bibles have featured an etching or drawing of a tree on the opening page. You know, so does the purpose-driven life. You know, that has a tree on it. I bet that's a green book. 
From Genesis to Revelation, I discovered a trail of green leaves, as well as vines, bushes, branches, and leaves. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden, and in the east, and there, there he put the man from whom he informed out of the ground. The Lord God had made to grow every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food, the tree of life also in the midst of the garden, and the tree of knowledge of good and evil. In the first chapters of Genesis, we see a relationship that will continue throughout the pages of history. God humans, and trees. In Genesis, we learn that trees have a purpose beyond prosaic utilitarianism. They are pleasant to the sight. Because we are created in God's image, we share this aesthetic standard. Trees are beautiful. It is a biblical truth. Trees are also the source of oxygen. No trees means no oxygen, no life for humans. The tree of life in Genesis is indeed aptly named. We breathe in the wind, that, and that wind is made for, of multiple ethereal realities. So apparently the purpose of the tree of life was to give us oxygen. <clears throat> Here's some more Bible twisting. Here we go. This is this is a great one. Alpha is the first letter of the Greek alphabet. Yeah, beta is the second. Whoop-de-doo. Okay, um, and omega is the last. That's important to know. If something is alpha or omega in the Bible, it's worth paying attention to. <clears throat> okay, now... Just so you know, if you read your Bible, <clears throat> actually read it. You know, open the book, crack the spine. I know you want to keep it clean. Don't worry about messing up the golden edges and stuff like that. But if you actually read the Bible, highlight it, read it from cover to cover, read entire sections, you know, more than one verse at a time. I know that Rick Warren would have you believe that's just not possible. But you can actually read the Bible in context. Um, there's actual passages that talk about the Alpha and the Omega. Do you know do you know who the alpha and the omega is? It's Jesus. <laughs> Jesus says, "I am the alpha and the omega, the beginning and the end, the first and the last." Jesus is the alpha and the omega. <sighs> Sorry. Let's continue with this little essay. If something is alpha or an omega in the Bible, it's worth paying attention to. This is the case with trees. We have encountered the alpha of trees, the tree of life. Ay, ay, ay. What is the omega tree? In the last chapter, on the last page of the Bible, we again encounter the tree of life. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of the light of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. On either side of the river is the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruits producing its fruit each month and the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. See, the tree of life is the Alpha and Omega tree. Why? This guy is completely missing the point. And see, this is what happens. By the way, the, what we're talking about here, this is a lesson in what we call eisegesis. Eisegesis. This is where you read into the scriptures or you you put your own stuff on the scriptures you're not actually reading out what it's saying this guy's completely just reading it metaphorically jesus is the alpha and the omega and the tree of life yeah, this this way of interpreting scripture is just an abomination sorry but <clears throat> the guy's way off now here's the fun part he quotes the talmud catch, catch this talmudic writings about the tree of life state that it is it was so large it would take 500 years to climb the tree of life. Wow, that's a big tree. Um, I bet that would make a few good houses, don't you? <laughs> oh, I'm sorry. I'm not supposed to speak about the Alpha and Omega tree like that, am I? 
Imagine the proportions of this tree based upon its height. We are also told that this tree is so large it drinks from the mighty river of life. Where's that? Any? Can you show me in the book of maps where the river of life is? In its shade, all the nations will be healed. We will be able to live together in peace as brothers and sisters. God does not merely tolerate trees. He puts them at the center of heaven. Here we go. Turning to the next page, because this is the best part, because we'll have to end up here, because, you know, once again, I've gone into extra innings. But see, next week it won't matter. I can go into as many extra... We can go 12 or 13 innings. Double header. Double header. <laughs> and we can even have multiple breaks so I don't sound so stupid when I say, we're going into our first break. <laughs> Sorry. <sighs> All right. <laughs> all right listen to this jonah went to nineveh in the mouth of a whale he prophesied and preached and all repented then he had a tantrum under the shade of a tree see, see there's more trees in the bible here god taught jonah a gentle lesson when the tree died god cares for everyone even the innocent animals of animals of nineveh and yes you and i as well as jonah could care too Considering the importance of trees to us and to God, it is not by chance that the most important event in the Bible is framed by trees. Jesus is only one of two named carpenters in the Bible. He spent 30 years preceding his ministry working with wood. He describes the kingdom of heaven as a mustard seed that grows into a tree where birds can nest. And he is the true vine and, des and describes his... Uh, let's see... He is the true vine and describes his followers as fruit-bearing orchards. Palm leaves are spread before him in the end, and he will stretch out his strong, callous carpenter's hands and die on a tree. Okay. And then when Jesus of Nazareth arose from the grave, the first person to see him was Mary of Magdala, and it is no accident that at first she mistook him for the gardener. See? Jesus is the gardener arisen to redeem all of creation. Christ, the gardener, has returned. This is the good news. And if you believe that, I've got carbon offset credits that I would like to sell you. In fact, if you would like to pay me, it's $1,000 per carbon credit, by the way. Make those payable to Chris Rosebro, care of Pirate Christian Radio. And uh, I, I got some carbon credits to sell you. I'm sorry, but the good news is not the message that Christ the gardener has returned. And the big problem that the earth faces is not the problem of a dying world. I gr Granted, we've got a problem. Our sin, which is the problem, that's the problem. Our sin. Our sin has impacted the whole creation. But the solution isn't a green Bible. The solution is Jesus Christ. Let me read to you Romans chapter 8, verses 18 through 25. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. 
For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have, who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoptions as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not, is not hope. For who hopes for what he has? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Romans 8 makes it really clear that the big problem is our sin problem and that because of our sin problem, the entire creation has been subjected to futility and to death. What's the solution to this? That's the big problem. What's the solution to this problem? Jesus Christ, who died for the sins of the whole world. And through him, we anxiously and patiently await literally the freeing of the entire creation from the bondage that we've put upon it because of our sin. The main problem with the world is not that the world is dying, it's that we are sinful, and through our sin, we have subjected the very creation to the problems that it is experiencing. You want to know why the planet is dying? It's because we are. For the wages of sin is death. This is what our sin has done to God's creation. Now, that doesn't mean that we just don't take care of our planet. Of course, we're responsible stewards of what God has given us. This is the only planet that we have. Was it C.S. Lewis who says, I surely hope that we don't get to another planet and pollute that thing, too. Can you imagine? Spreading our sin like a virus throughout the universe? That would be fun. I'm sorry, but the Green Bible... The emphasis is in the wrong place. It's not upon the creation that we should be focusing. It's upon Christ. And through that focus, Christ is literally the object of our faith and our trust. And we receive forgiveness of sins from him. And we receive hope and the promise of a freeing of the creation when he returns in glory. And we will live forever in that new creation, the new heavens and the new earth. That's where our hope is. And in the meantime, we have to manage the earth and take care of the resources that we have because what we have will not last if we are not responsible with it. And taking care of the planet is a good work, and it's one that we as Christians should engage in. Anyway, that's enough of the jolly green Bible. I think you get the point. It focuses on the wrong wrong, wrong thing. Anyway, enough of that. Well, folks, if you would like to email me and let me know how, uh, as a Christian, that really the thing that Christ came to do was to uh, guilt us about our carbon credit usage, um, you can email me, talkback at fightingforthefaith.com. That's talkback at fightingforthefaith.com. Until next time, may God bless you.